Podcasting is an astonishing amount of work, so I rely on some great tools to make it easier. One of my staples is Zencaster. They provide a crystal clear sound and gorgeous HD video. I love that it records separate audio and video tracks for the guests and for me so that everything comes through really clearly, even if there's a lag in the internet. Plus, there's a secured cloud backup so you never lose your interviews. Since I'm often recording from remote places, I love that it's easy to record audio only as well as audio and video. It's super easy to use and there's nothing to download aside from your recordings. My guests just click on the link and we start recording. Go to zen.ai slash canine conservationists to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Pro. So again, that's zen.ai slash canine conservationists for 30% off. Welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Anne McLoon from Seeking Scent about precision tracking and using hide placement to get the most learning application for your dogs. Welcome to the podcast, Anne. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we're done with our tech issues. <laughs> and um, yeah, so Anne got her start in dogs in 1999 with her first Sussex Spaniel, Spaniel Connie. She has trained and titled dogs in a wide variety of canine venues, but in 2005, her energies and devotion turned to search and rescue. As a member of Josephine County SAR, she became a canine handler and ultimately the unit lead for the canine unit. She deployed her dogs on hundreds of missions throughout Southern Oregon and Northern California before retiring in 2009. Her first SAR canine was a wilderness air scenting and human remains detection dog, while her subsequent dog specialized in mandrake. Her current dog, a working cocker, just recently brought her back into the SAR fold. Millie specializes in article detection and tracking and loves to share her knowledge with others, teaching and coaching online through Seeking Scent Canine Sports. And she primarily focuses on precision tracking, detection, and gun dog foundations. Some of her students have gone on to explore or become active in canine conservation work, which is actually how we connected. I believe two of my patrons are also students of yours. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Exactly. One um, one thing I want to mention was that, mm -hmm. thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, and I probably wrote it wrong. I actually was in SAR from 2005 to 2019 instead of 2009. Um, oh, no, I, just, I just read it wrong. <laughs> it says 2019 <laughs> right here. <laughs> Well, it's funny because just um, just last weekend I recertified um, myself in CPR and first aid and bloodborne pathogens. So mm -hmm. I'm back. So wow. back. <laughs> so much mission, for retiring. Yeah, mission ready. Yeah, so much for <laughs> retiring and excited to be back. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Congrats. Um, so before we get to it, as I said, we have been trying to do a science highlight at the beginning of each episode. So um, this week, the, the, um, the article that I picked out is from the Journal of Veterinary Behavior, and it's titled Wildlife Detection Dog Training, a case study on achieving generalization between target odor and variation while retaining specificity, which is quite a mouthful. <laughs> um, this paper came out in 2016. And the, basically, the question was, can they use the captive sprints to teach a dog to find wild samples? And sprints, as far as I can tell, is just a fancy word for the poop of um, otters and other mustelids. 
So they started out training the dog using a standard multiple choice carousel in a stepwise protocol. They started with odor samples from fresh captive otters and progressed towards two week old sprays from wild otters, among other mammalian dung odors and tested for specificity and generality after each training step. They showed that training on only two variations of sprints from captive otters enabled the dog to detect all desired sprained odor variations in their protocol, which indicates a rapid generalization to variations of sprained odor that the dog was not trained on while still retaining specificity. So after 412 training trials, of which 302 were pre-training, um, with the fresh captive otter sprain and 176 meeting the criterion of five out of six correct, the dog immediately responded to a fresh sprint from a different captive individual from a different group. Um, however, in test 178, the dog did not detect the goal sprint, which was wild in age two weeks based on the training. So they kind of went back to working towards wild. Anyway, long story short, we don't have to go through the entire trial. Um, they were able to show that the dog was able to generalize. Um, one thing that I found really interesting and a little bit curious about this um, paper was that everything was done in the lab. They didn't actually ever take the dog out into the wilderness to see if the dog was able to find wild sprains, um, which obviously, you know, there's a lot more variability with the search environment, all sorts of stuff. Um, and they weren't using... D distractor odors that were super duper close to otter so it's not like they were comparing otter sprints to sprints from a mink that had a very fishy diet as well or a stoat with a really fishy diet um so while they did have distractor odors it wasn't like the sort of distractor odors that are most likely to trip a dog up so interesting study um but as always it's got its limitations very cool yeah. So let's get into our interview. The first question I had for you um, was that, you know, dogs kind of come to us naturally knowing how to sniff. They know how to use their noses to some degree. But do our dogs naturally know how to problem solve? Or is that something we have to teach them? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I actually will kind of... Um, say something that's probably not um not the norm and that um and i've noticed this through a lot of my students is a lot of dogs particularly pet dogs yes they're born know how to sniff obviously right but by the mm -hmm. time they're with their owner maybe a year's gone by a couple years gone by they a lot of times have forgotten how to sniff it's not that they've and, and that's a very general way of saying it. it's not that they've forgotten how to sniff, but think of so many pet owners taking their dogs for a walk and the dog sniffing, mm -hmm. no sniff, no sniff, no sniff. Mm -hmm. And so I have actually had quite a few dogs come to me in my online classes, particularly in my tracking class, where we have to build up the dog's ability and confidence for them to use olfaction again. It's been a, it's been super, super interesting. Um, and with that, building up their ability to say, hey, you know, I can use my nose. I'm not going to get into trouble. This is all good. The problem solving, um, it will depend on each dog. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I do think a lot of it, they do have to be exposed. And some are better problem solvers than others. They're definitely efficient. So that's a lot of the times the tricky part is you will see these dogs that 
um, especially in a detection application, you know, if they get a clue from their handler, mm-hmm. yeah, they'll, pro- they'll problem solve, but not in the way we want them to problem solve. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And I know I've talked previously on this podcast how, you know, basically I think as soon as I started doing scent work with Barley, he started problem solving all sorts of scent puzzles to find all sorts of delicious items around the house that, um, hadn't previously been quite as much of an issue (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's um one of my funniest actually it's kind of a little story that that relates to this um beryl my first uh search and rescue canine she was also the first uh one of my dogs that i did human remains detection with and while she was training and learning and we were exposing her to of course all different scenarios and setups which is really really important and in a in an environment where you are going to be, where she was potentially going to be deployed. And she hadn't yet reached that level where we started doing inaccessible hides with her. So things behind Mm -hmm. cabinets, behind doors, but she was at a stage of her training when she was ready to be exposed to that. So, and I vividly recall the first scenario where she had source placed behind a cabinet door and she worked and worked and worked. And finally, she figured it out and indicated it on the cabinet door and we opened it up and there was the source and there was, you know, her reward and hooray. And, and it was just really fun. And she learned right quick. She learned that reward and reinforcement could be behind doors. Ever Mm -hmm. since then, she learned to open the refrigerator and she generalized that. Yes, she could open my home refrigerator and she generalized it to every single refrigerator. I traveled a lot with her for agility. We go into a hotel room. First thing she do is open the refrigerator and just check (laughs) and just check. Yes. So, I mean, problem solving, I think you have to, especially certain concepts behind things, under things, um, on top of things, they, the dog has to be exposed, um, to that, con- to that concept, especially in thinking in a three-dimensional aspect. And then mm-hmm. they start to become sometimes too good at problem solving. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, and that, that leads us really nicely into my next question, which are what are some of the concepts that we can and probably want to teach our detection dogs by where we hide their target? Um, so, you know, you just gave the lovely example of the first time that she was introduced to um, something that was behind a, a closed door. But what are some of the other things that we may want to start layering in, especially, you know, in, when we're in that stage of going from a simple search up towards trying to get this dog to be ready to be operational? So one of the things that I find really beneficial is I think when we come and look at scent work, whether it's detection or tracking even, olfaction isn't the only clue the dogs are using to solve the problem. And I think Mm -hmm. we forget that sometimes. So Mm -hmm. just like in real estate, I suggest my students really look at location, location, location. And what I mean by that is if I have a dog that's, say, going to be a truffle hunting dog, for example, and I know that my truffles are only found under certain varieties or species of trees, I want to incorporate that into my training So that my dog can pick up the associative clues, whether it's the scent of the tree, the scent of the ground there perhaps is different. I don't know. Um, 
But those associations, I want my dog to, to understand those so that when I'm out in the woods truffle hunting, my dog is focusing on location. I know I can find truffles under this variety or this species of oak tree or this fir tree over that tree. So I think it's really important um, when we're training our detection dogs to do it in the environment where they're going to be searching because there uh -huh. are associated, yeah, there are associative clues that the dog is going to pick up on and to learn that's going to help them become more efficient searchers for the target odor that they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think during our pre-interview, you and I were talking about this concept and I was talking about um, when I was doing the black-footed ferret work, how quickly Barley very rightly picked up on the fact that he was go he was supposed to go stick his head down every prairie dog burrow he could find. Um, and he was, you know, he would kind of start out searching visually until he locked in on a burrow to go check. And then he would kind of go from burrow to burrow. Um, and that was, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny because yeah, we don't think of vision as playing part of um, part of the search dog picture, but it, but it does. Oh, it absolutely does. And I was talking to a handler just the other day and, and we were um, surmising, wouldn't it be cool if somebody could make a product? So somebody out there who's really techie, or maybe it's already been made um, for say you're looking for an, uh, an endangered species that you, that are tricky to find out in, in the wilderness and maybe, um, you know, move too quickly and you don't, and you need to practice on something. So a lot of times you're mm -hmm. practicing on swabs or cotton swabs or whatever, you know, you can get your handle on, but you don't have the physical, you don't have the physical thing. You don't have mm -hmm. something that looks like a frog or a salamander or a bee or something. So wouldn't it be cool though, if there was a device that, or a, a material that looked like what you were searching for that you could add your odor to. So you could have your dog learning on the entire picture of what yeah. they were searching for. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I was, I was almost thinking like if I could like install my get sent tubes inside of a little piece of fake poop, <laughs> like <laughs> that would work really, really nicely. And then, yeah, then the tricky thing would be figuring out what material you could use for your, your fake frog or your fake poop or whatever it is that doesn't also have an odor of its own. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But oh gosh. Um, yeah. That's above my pay grade for sure. But what a cool idea. Yeah. It's, yeah. Way above mine too, but it's, it's because of how dogs learn. I mean, they learn in pictures. So every time I'm setting up, if I'm teaching my dog anything, I, I want them to get the entire picture of what I'm asking them to do, whether that's mm -hmm. a detection application, a tracking application, or um, a gun dog application, you know, for a remote sit. Now, I, I, wanted, I want them to understand the entire picture from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, let's, let's kind of circle back more to then thinking about, yeah, like these, these hide placements. So, you know, you gave the example with a truffle dog where you may be strategically placing it under certain trees. I imagine you also would really be wanting to teach the dog the concept that, hey, this, if this is going to be inaccessible, it's going to be inaccessible low, um, which is really different from if you wanted a, a dog to find bat hibernacula, which are likely to be inaccessible high. Um, do you have any other examples? Um, or maybe, maybe within the SAR world, um, do you think about 
the behavior of missing people as you're thinking about these search strategies for dogs? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there's, um, there's beautiful works that have been done on, on, um, the behavior of missing people. So whether they're Mm -hmm. hikers or people with Alzheimer's diseases and, um, Robert Kessler is his name has put this book together and he's gone through all of these search old searches and it helps you understand, um, the lost person behavior. And it's really, really important because if I'm looking for a certain person, say a person with Alzheimer's, it's always a good example. A lot of times, um, as the disease progresses, they tend to walk in straight lines and maybe walk into the berry bushes, the blackberry thicket. It's always a good example. Mm. And they walk forward, but they can't walk backwards. So as a, as a searcher, if you were looking for someone who um, wasn't cognitively impaired, why would you look necessarily in the midst of a middle of a, a blackberry bush? You probably wouldn't. But if you knew the behavior and knew the, the, um, the situation of your lost person, yeah, you might. And there have been those searches that I've been on where um, man trackers actually have followed the track of the lost person deep into thick gorse, which if you know anything about gorse, it's, I don't know anything. It's it's horrible. It's worse than blackberry bushes. And that's where the person was located because they had just walked in and they couldn't get themselves out. They couldn't back up. I've seen this in my own dogs, actually ones that have gotten old and gotten um, cognitively impaired, but, um, yeah, knowing knowing what your subject um, is likely to do or how they're likely to react is super important, and it's the same with um, you know placing hides for detection too. If I'm mm-hmm. if I have um, you know a species or something that I'm going to be looking at again that's only underground, I'm not going to waste my time a lot practicing elevated hides. Yeah, or I'm suspended be- or. <laughs> Yeah, if I'm looking for a bird species or something where I need my dog to understand elevation, I'm going to put a whole lot more time into elevated hides than I am to bury where I may not spend any time at all because I want to give my dog the best chance of success. So I want them to give them the most exposure to what they're going to actually encounter out in the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I know it's something I've been thinking about a lot with Niffler, who's my far less experienced dog currently. He's only ever worked on wind farms. So he's worked in areas with really consistent wind, tends to be really long, narrow scent cones. There's not a lot of swirling or lofting or anything interesting happening. It's just, just wind. across the plains <laughs> and it's tricky in its own way because again it's these really long narrow scent cones sometimes we were still working in really tall grass or around like soybean fields um but you know the first time that he has to work something with more 3d complexity there's going to be a lot of really interesting um problem solving skills that he's going to need to learn that he doesn't currently have versus barley. His first project was on zebra mussels. So he was immediately learning how to do basically it's, it's a, it's a vehicle search. Um, so he was really learning how to slow down and be detail oriented um, and even take quite a bit of direction. And then his next project was that black footed ferret project where we're out doing like 300 acre searches across the desert. Um, so and, I don't know. There, there wasn't a question a- in there. <laughs> Yeah, no, but that's a really hard concept for not only for handlers, 
to grasp and for dogs to grasp from going to, you know, your, your situation where you have a huge amount of acreage to cover and you need mm -hmm. the dog and your scent source is larger. So, and you need your dog to cover ground efficiently and work all day. And, and, you know, it's a different search parameter. And then you need to adjust for your next project into detailed searching. Yeah. That is not necessarily an easy thing for a dog to do or a handler to grasp. Mm -hmm. One of the, one of the, um, the things that again, and it all goes back to location, um, reinforcement, reward placement, mm -hmm. source placement, where you place your training odor is going to dictate and you can dictate the kind of searching that you want out of your dog, whether it's fine yeah. detail or large area. Yeah. Do you have any examples that you could give of like, I know it's hard to do over a podcast where we can't draw a diagram, but of how you would set up a search to really start moving a dog towards learning how to slow down and be digital oriented or vice versa, doing a bigger search? So um, slowing down, slowing down can be tough, particularly for dogs that, that are incredibly drivey, incredibly just want to run that have mm -hmm. that built into them. So slowing down, being able to slow down, to think, to process is, um, is it can be challenging. What, what you need to do almost is take your odor source and go to almost the lowest threshold that you can go. So something that's so small that your dog has to, has to stop, has to process and one of the ways that I've been experimenting with um, right now to help a handler is um, using, because you're out in the field, and so you don't have a lot of guides out there that you can use. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the mine detection dogs, right? They might be running lines or lanes, and, and they might have strings or other guides for them. But you have your body. Your body can be a guide, so what I mean by that, say I need my dog to search um, a search along a creek bed or something. Mm -hmm. I can set up my hides so that the dog is always finding them in front of my feet. And that way I can slowly move through a search environment, perhaps. And my dog is working and they know they're only going to find the source in front front of my feet, for example, and I can move my dog just by moving myself slowly through and meandering oh, through cool. an environment. Uh -huh. You see what I'm, you see where I'm going with that? Yeah. It's, it's the only thing you have out there is your body in a sense. And if they only find source right around your body, that's where they're going to hang out. Yeah. You can kind of magnetize them to you and then use your body as the, as the way to move them through. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Do you, <laughs> I'm curious about if there are any drawbacks to that, as far as having the dog then miss stuff that's f like six meters off to the side, or has that not been a problem um, because the dogs aren't it's so cute into you? It, it depends. I mean, if, if I, um, again, if I were looking for something and again, as a handler, I mean, it's one of the things we did in search and rescue, depending on the environment and the wind and the terrain, we would either have a large grid or a narrow grid and how we searched. Mm -hmm. So the same application can be used, um, in this example, 
if I believe that my source is between, um, you know, the say the creek as, as one boundary and 20 meters out or 10 meters out as another boundary, that's the only place this species is ever found. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use my body and grid and grid the area. Um, and my source is only going to be found within those parameters again. Yeah. So okay. yeah. Yeah. But you have to be, you have to know where you've been. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. one of the tricks you all, one of the tricks and even, and even in wide area search or big areas where you're out on 160, 340 acres, whatever it is you're searching, you have to know where you've been so there's a give and take between gridding the area and always getting your dog in position to get odor depending yeah. on how the wind current environment is set up so you're always balancing those two things mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense that's where i feel like i'm usually walking around with you know my gps six inches from my face um <laughs> And somehow still trying to watch my dog and not step on a snake. <laughs> and and I probably tell you to put the GPS away. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I've coached a few folks that, yeah, you know, you get wedded to the GPS and, and, and what happens in that situation, quite honestly, is you get so fo- focused on the technology that you forget to be spatially aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially as you're saying with, you know, these bigger searches, you know, depending on how your topography varies within a couple hundred acres, you're going to have to update your strategy as you go, or the wind could shift over the course of a couple hour search, which is really different from like, again, when I was on the wind farm, A, you had a wind turbine that you were searching around. So I got very good at, I didn't really have to look at my GPS. I could just kind of tell you know, basically how to follow the search pattern within, uh, based on where I was in relation to my, my turbine. And also the wind there is so consistent and it's so flat. Um, and which is just really different from a lot of other setups that we may encounter. Yeah. When you're, when you get out into the areas where you have complex terrain, the, um, the wind situations, the, the, just the little micro, climates that are going um, can be really, really tricky. The other thing about when you're um, searching in a, in a large area, my first search dog, Beryl, again, she was a Sussex Spaniel. Um, they're actually, they're, they're hunting dogs. They're really good little hunting dogs, but she did not, she did not range like say a lab or some of the other mm-hmm. breeds that would just, just, just go go right they're out of sight they're just they're just gone right but the advantage from what i found the advantage for me was is i always had eyes on my dog so yeah even if she was only a hundred a hundred feet or 200 feet from me i could always watch her so i could always see the head flicks and see those changes of behavior in my dog um where if the dog is out of my sight i miss them so I could always see those and go, and, and I learned through our training setups and things like that to trust them. So I could see, oh man, I've got a head flick. She's got odor there. And, and then I could take a bearing and, and you know, do mm-hmm. some other stuff and, and we could try to work our problem um, to a solution. But 
Um, so that was an advantage to be able to see dog. Yeah, I actually, I, I think I prefer dogs that work a little bit more closely. When I first started working at Working Dogs for Conservation and I was comparing um, my my Border Collie Barley um, to, to the labs that I was working with, I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to teach him to range farther? How am I going to get him to work further away from me? He's way too close to me. And then now, you know, unless I'm doing really massive transects, which I generally don't do unless it's for a specific study reason where they're kind of trying to find like how big can we possibly make our transects and still be useful um you know I don't need that both of my dogs range nicely enough and I would much rather have my eyes on the dog and I like that both of my dogs um being border collies are also really responsive in the field and I like that I'm able to give them direction very easily um which I think is a personal choice thing I I I don't think it's wrong to have a dog that ranges really well and maybe doesn't listen quite as much um but personally i like something else yeah yeah there's always pros there are always cons with anything so absolutely absolutely yeah i always like to be able to see my dog <laughs> just yeah. my personal preference yeah i i know and, and it's tough in some environments i mean i can imagine and what was it the the, the gross the uh, uh, the, the gorse Gorse. gorse. <laughs> I was like, it's yeah. not gross. Gorse. Uh, like in the gorse, I would imagine that you really need your dogs to be very close to you. Otherwise you're not going to be able to see them. Even if, you know, they're just a dozen meters away. You can't get in it. See, that's the stuff. It's, it's, it is virtually impenetrable unless oh. you're, it, it, it's like a wall of needles. It's oh. the worst thing you've ever experienced. And so so you would never assume that a lost person could even get in it. And yet, yeah. and yet people do, especially mm-hmm. if they have a, you know, a cognitive issue and they just walk into it. You, you would never think anybody could get yeah. into that. Stuff. Oh my gosh. Hor- horrific. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, and I know, again, thinking about, um, I was shadowing someone at WD4C doing bear scat surveys. And there, again, uh, you know, in certain types of Montana forest, even if the dog isn't that far away, you could see on the GPS that the dog isn't that far away. You don't necessarily have eyes on them. Um, so that's just a little tangent, though. So um, I have a couple other questions from Patreon that I wanted to start getting through, and we'll keep chewing on all these different concepts. So Yana from Patreon, who I know you know, um, asked how we incorporate handler movement and hide placement into training, and especially with the goal of accurate but effectively progressing through searches in the wilderness. Um and that's that's the question. So I don't I, I don't have more detail on um, exactly what she's got in mind. Um, well, I think we know, and 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 I and I do know her and beautiful mm-hmm. working dog and relationship. It's really cool to watch. Absolutely, um, yeah, yeah. When we're working, you know, um, say in an, in an environment detection hide, um, your body, and, and that's the thing. Our dogs, even when they're independently searching they're working with us or they should be there should be that invisible leash so to speak where you want Mm -hmm. the dog working independently but i want to be able to just subtly with my body move my dog i don't i don't need to say check here check here check there 
I can just use my, the pressure of my body to turn my shoulders one way and suggest, let's search over here, or increase the pressure by moving closer to my dog, which would tell them I need a little more detail in this area, or I take pressure off and I move back and I open up the search area and I invite my dog into my space and open it up for them to search um, because they are always, they've got eyes in the back of their heads. They're always mm -hmm. watching us and moving with us. And I've done agility for years as well. So I know very well, all it takes is a slight shoulder turn or a shoulder drop or you know, mm -hmm. your foot to, to take a step back. And you can invite the dog into that space to search without being um, too directed, without compromising the dog's independent searching style. So that's not really, and she does that very well with her dog. Um, that's mm -hmm. not really that difficult. You can do the same thing even with a large problem. So even the dogs that are ranging far or ranging close in, you are still moving with your dog and um, you are still a team out there. So we want our dogs independently searching, but there are sometimes we are the handler <laughs> and we can mm -hmm. use our our cognitive skills when we need to and say i see what's happening but my dog say physically can't get to an area and that might be a terrain reason and so i need to be able to direct my dog around say um you know, a cliff face or around an obstacle so I can actually get them back in a position so they can help solve, you know, the problem that, that they're being asked to solve. But there are times when we do have to step in. It can be for safety, but it can just be that we can see the dog working a problem, but there's no way they're going to be able to access it. So we need to get, that's where getting the dog in the position to access the odor and move them through the environment becomes really, really important. My name is Key, and I have a two-year-old working Cocker Spaniel named Cooper. Cooper and I are new to this field of conservation detection dog work, so I am loving being a Patreon of the Canine Conservationist. Uh, we get to meet once a month via Zoom with people all over the world and watch each other's videos and um, give input, and it's just been such a wonderful learning opportunity. Um, on top of that, I'm really excited about something that's about to start, which is a book club that we're going to be going through a scent book that I tried to go through on my own and realized I really needed some more help. So it was perfect timing for me, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um, just being able to meet people and talk through issues and um, better understand the whole field of canine conservation work um, has just been such a, a great thing. And Kayla and the canine conservationist have played such a huge part in that happening for me. So thanks, Kayla. Yeah, yeah. And then again, you know, probably knowing your dog and knowing how much direction is going to be too much direction and how much instruction is going to get the dog to just wander around following you because nobody wants that either. Um, no, I, no, nobody wants that. Yeah. And I think some of that comes with, um, you know, not getting the unknown hides in fast enough um, in your training and keeping that all in balance because you know, for new handlers that are out there perhaps listening, um, I always start with known hides because you're learning to read your dog. You're learning 
you know, they're le- you're learning how they learn. So you're going to see in, in dogs that um, use memory a lot, for example, they always go check previous hide locations because they're using memory over olfaction. That's where location comes in. You see it with nose work dogs. They go into search environment and they check the table, the chairs, the trash bin, because that's where judges tend to put hides. So dogs aren't stupid. That's where they go check first and then they start mm-hmm. using their nose. So you're going to see that, but then quickly as um, quickly as your training allows and your dog progression allows to, to get to those either single or double blind hides, because that's when you really become a team. That's when it yeah. all, the magic really, really happens. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I know for me, you know, like just thinking about like, and this is a slightly different skill. Um, cause you're, you're talking about kind of supporting the dog once the dog has already caught odor. But another one that I know I've run into is teaching the dog how to check in a specific spot, um, and kind of asking them to, to go back through a specific area. And I know I've just had to be very careful that, you know, two thirds of the time when I ask him to check something, there's nothing there. So it's still worth it for him to listen to me, but he's not just going to throw an alert because I asked him to look at something. Exactly. One, one technique I like to use a lot is um, a lot of times we tend to work our dogs into the wind. Um, I actually, if I, if I do that, um, I actually like to work the other direction. I actually like to work with the wind at my back because that way my dog, the wind's at my back. And that way um, my dog, when they catch that odor, they're going to give me this beautiful head hook right back into odor. And it's, mm. you can't, you can't mistake it. And it's just beautiful. And it's like, bingo, there's your source. Um, it's sort of like, you know, and you'll, you'll see this when you're working into the odor too. Um, you're working in, you're working in, and all of a sudden your dog loses it. You get this head hook right back in. So that head hook mm-hmm. um, is just such a big tell. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's funny how, yeah, playing with like, generally speaking in an operational search, you want the wind at your shoulder. Um, but you know, in, in some training scenarios, it may make sense to work in different ways just to, to build on different skills, which I I think that's where it starts getting really tricky and interesting. I think, uh, well, yeah. And I think in the wilderness environment, which I spent a lot of time in, you know, you're, you're always trained, um, to, to, to have the wind crosswind or headwind or, or whatever. And you know what, you get out there and you can't do that. The environment mm-hmm. doesn't allow for it. So mm-hmm. you have to expose your dogs to downwind scenarios, um, upwind scenario. I mean, they have to be exposed to all of that because you get in there and there's no trails out in the wilderness generally. So mm-hmm. you have to to navigate the safest way possible through the environment. And wind is usually the last thing that you can actually think about. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and especially, you know, when you're running into situations where, again, thinking about some of these searches I was doing out in Montana, like it's dense. You can't really like put your finger up and feel where the wind is, even like a smoke puffer or whatever you can't necessarily get much out of it and then you're going up and down these ridge lines and searching throughout the day and you've got rising odor in the morning and sinking odor in the evening and yes. or you know not, i guess not odor but air which brings the odor with it um yeah no that's a good point you know there's these ideal best practice scenarios and then there's the reality once we get on the ground exactly 
Exactly. Yeah. So, okay. Another question came from Megan on Patreon and she was asking, and this is an interesting question because we were just talking about how we can use vision to aid in our search training. She was talking about how do you teach the dog to differentiate between visual aids and odor? For instance, she came across a company selling scent work hides, but they were in all sorts of fun shapes and bright colors, which might make the hide more noticeable. And if you use those things in training, how do you guarantee the dog is searching for the odor and not searching for the, you know, the visual aid? That's a great question because I think those, um, I'm not, I haven't seen what she's referring to, but I, I would tend to stay away, stay away from them personally, because Mm -hmm. it's the same. um, It's a great, it's just such a super question. Those, those of you that know me out there and there's some that do know how I (laughs) hate boxes. So (laughs) I am not a fan of, boxes i am not a fan of um anything like that especially as the dog is being quote imprinted on an odor because that can become part of the picture for the dog and so i see that a lot dogs being imprinted in you know a lineup which to me is something completely different anyways but um and they're, they're being imprinted using a box. Now I know in some situations, if you have an odor that that's the only way you can imprint a dog, then you're kind of stuck with it. But that box, you don't know if what became important for the dog was the odor, the box and the odor or the box. And I'm a real lazy dog trainer in a sense is I don't want to have to then prove my dog off boxes. Or prove my dog off funny shapes, yellow shapes. Which yeah, uh-huh. yellow is a co- yellow is a, a color dogs see readily, um, and blue. So I don't want my dog looking for and thinking that um, I need to look for the yellow odor or the blue odor or the one that's shaped like a triangle. Um, I want them just focused on odor, and that's all I want them focused on. And and I think about. Um, when I, when I'm starting a dog or working a dog, I'm placing that odor as quickly as I can in an environment so that the, uh, there's distractions all all the time, right? So if I go train at my fairgrounds, um, there's distractions everywhere. I don't need to place distractions out. There's enough horse shit on the ground. Excuse my language. Oops. Um, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) There's enough stuff out there on the ground, horse poop on the ground, or, you know, the discarded candy wrappers or whatever it is in the fairgrounds environment. I don't need to purposely put distractors out, which are purposely put out items, which again, our dogs can pick up on the fact that something was purposely put out. I just want my dog to sing on odor. So I tend to not muck it up with anything that could potentially overshadow that. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. And I know I'm working on a webinar right now, uh, which will be way past by the time this um, episode comes out, but on kind of imprinting and teaching your dog a target odor. And I was going back through videos that I have of different times I've taught Barley a new target odor. And I think the cleanest session I ever did with him teaching him um, an odor, we started using like six inch tall grass right away. So he was just searching in kind of, uh, it was a, it was a hay field sort of, sort of area. So much taller than your, your lawn probably, but not knee height. Um, so he was having to kind of start searching for that odor 
within like a 10 foot radius of me within 15 minutes of being introduced to it. And I really liked that setup for him. I I tend to, yeah, I, I I was just going to say, I would tend to agree. I know I, when I introduced Millie on, um, fire the odor of firearms um and spent shells and things like that i basically you know i had a jar and and i had her sniff it and i gave her a few cookies and whatever and then that i did like a, a couple of times that and then i immediately hit it because um that's the other thing when we place source out again location location so your dog comes across a new odor that hasn't been in the environment before they're probably going to check it out and you can mark it and get in there and reinforce it and then pretty soon they're like oh okay that's an important odor i should pay attention to it and it goes it's simple it's quick and um most dogs pick up that concept pretty fast yeah definitely i'm, I'm curious i haven't and i won't have the opportunity to do this again until my next dog um but I have found that introducing searching much more quickly has worked much better for Barley in particular. And I'm not quite sure if that's because he's, he already knows the searching game so well, or if it's because he's such a visual dog and such a try it dog. And he so quickly goes into training mode that lineups can be really, really tricky for him. Um, And I, I, yeah, I find that kind of introducing the search really early on has been really helpful. And Niffler has only ever learned one target odor at this point. Um, and I introduced it to him in a much more kind of like I had two tins and I was kind of putting, I was almost playing like a cup game with him right away before introducing the search. Um, and that was just his first or, you know, first one or two sessions before we introduced a search. So it was still pretty quick, but not quite as quick as what I've done with Barley in the past. Yeah, I introduced um, search, you know, right as puppies, you know, they're searching for toys, they're searching for mm-hmm. food, they're searching for their supper, they're learning mm-hmm. about how to search, they're learning about the environment, they're learning how to, that things move to go under, over, you know, through things, um, surfaces, textures, all of that kind of stuff. And then when mm-hmm. I do introduce an odor, I, I, um, I will tend to, to now, I didn't in the past, um, you introduce what I would call a, you know, a miscellaneous sort of odor. So with my young uh, working cocker, she was um, started on handler scent because I was doing tracking with her. And then when mm-hmm. I started doing detection, I introduced um, Kong and the small bits of Kong just to get a, a, a small odor threshold. And also just because I wasn't, to be honest, sure what odor I was ever going to put her on. So I thought, right. hey, mm-hmm. I we're just going to play with Kong right now. She learned how to search. And so when it was time to introduce the odor I wanted her to find, that was, like I said, yeah. pretty, pretty easy. Yeah. Niffler's first six months of training was all food. I didn't introduce bats to him yeah. until we had been officially hired for a wind farm. Cause I was like, I don't know what I'm going to want him to find. Like no point. Um, I know. And, and, and there are different ways that people do it in the conservation dog world. I Barley is also trained to just find birch, like what you would use in nose work. And that's what I'm going to teach Niffler next. Just to, so I've got something that I can put in a tube and I don't really care about. It's an essential oil just for really easy kind of on the road training, because, you know, there's only so many places that people let you put dead bats. Um, and I assume you run into this with like human remains where it's like, Hey, can I just like put my mis- placenta in this, in the ice hardware or something? Like, I don't know how people would feel about that uh, <laughs> yeah, so old 
yes, have teeth. How about that? Very well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Yeah, we run into the same thing in the conservation dog world. And I know like um, rogue detection, they do something really clever where um, they introduce all of their dogs to Wolverine scat because a Wolverines are really, really rare. So your dog isn't going to slow you down by finding Wolverine all the time. And B, again, because they're so rare, (laughs) it's the sort of thing that, hey, if your dog finds it two years later when they're supposed to be finding something else, it's still interesting. It's still like good data versus, you know, I would absolutely not want to teach my dogs to find coyote scat (laughs) just for fun because there's coyotes everywhere and it would slow down and ruin so many of our searches to have my dogs picking up coyote scat all the time yeah uh, yeah exactly that's really that's clever the wolverine scat i like that. I, yeah but to I find like an that a odor lot. that yeah to find an odor that um so you can keep practicing you know out out of seasons so you know when you're in between projects to keep practicing one thing i will suggest um, is to also think about the thresholds, the other threshold, um, cause birch is pretty stinky. So mm-hmm. as you know, so if what I like to do is, is, um, if I'm going to have a dog that is going to be looking for a source that has a large odor threshold, then that actually works out really perfect. Or I need my dog to really work out an air scenting type problem, which is a detection problem. Something that's odiferous like birch is a good way to, to go. But if I need my dog to be detailing, really fine detail, I'm going to put them on a very small odor. So for mm-hmm. me, that's Kong. I've heard others use um, bed bugs, um, but something with a really low odor threshold so that my dog really has to use their nose and get that um, sniffing frequency really, really high. And I need that for um, precision hard surface tracking anyways. Yeah, mm-hmm, that makes sense. So, okay, the last question I've got written down, which doesn't mean it's it doesn't mean we're done, but last question I've got written down is also from Megan from Patreon. Um, and just as a reminder, if anyone listening, if you want to ask questions, join us on Patreon. We also have a book club. We also do a video training call. Super fun. Um, it starts at three bucks a month, so like, there's no reason not to. Um, so Megan asked. Odor contamination is a big issue in the competition scent world. Is this a concern in conservation detection? Can odor contamination in the search environment be used to teach the dog to differentiate between residual odor and the actual source? Um, So a couple different questions there. I'll let you jump in with what you know from, um, you can answer from the SAR background as well as, you know, from conservation. And then I'll, I'll chime in whenever I'm ready. Um, There's some, those are some really interesting questions. I know from the SAR world in my experience with um, human remains detection, contamination um, usually raises its head when handlers are putting sources out (laughs) to have the dog find and inadvertently contaminate the area. So I think that's Mm. something that um, has to be thought of and taken into account depending on how your sources as wildlife um, conservation handlers um, access to that source material and how you handle it and to make sure that you didn't don't inadvertently contaminate things with um, you know as you're placing out source material and I, i think that goes for any kind of detection application because yeah it's odor so the dog's are going to indicate if you contaminate. The question always comes up, is it residual? Is it contamination? Um, you know, X or Y or Z, it's sort of a catch-22. 
And mm-hmm. so one of, and, and this usually comes around in terms of um, if my dog indicates on, say, the seam of a cabinet, they are not getting their nose onto the source, what I call nose on source, and they're not actually getting to the source because they physically can't. It's an inaccessible type hide. Yeah. Has, has the odor at that point, is it, has it changed molecularly? Is it something different? It's not, they're not at source, but I, I tend to not want to, I'm not a scientist and I'm trusting my, my training and how I've trained my dog. I want my dog to find odor and get their nose as close as possible to the source if they can. So I work that into my training plan. If my dog indicates on um, contamination or residual, that's information to me. If that's the only thing that's there, then I would, I would take it. Let some, let, let somebody else figure out, um, you know, what it is, what it isn't. But I've trained my dog on odor um, and to get their nose as close as possible. That doesn't mean that my dog comes into a room and, you know, smells the odor of a recently fired handgun, for example, and it's pooled in the corner and they get stuck in the corner and never try to find source. That's a different question. I want them to try to to work and say, hey, I've got odor here in the room, but now I need to work the room to find source, um, to back, mm-hmm. to back, you know, work the, the dynamic in that room. Um, and so I'm not going to, you know, reinforce them laying down or barking or whatever the dog does in the corner when there's nothing there. So I think that's a, that's an inter- it's a, it's an interesting, complicated, um, complex mm-hmm. question. Yeah. Yeah. I go, I go back and forth on this sort of thing as well. And I know what I did with Niffler um, last summer on the wind farm a lot was if I couldn't find anything, but it seemed reasonable that there was something residual there. So there was a couple of times where he alerted to kind of a wet patch of dirt that may have been blood. I would give him a little bit of chicken and we would keep going. And then when he actually did find a bat, we'd play our whole game and do the whole thing. Um, and I think part of that for me as well is I'm not looking for evidence where, you know, if I were looking for evidence, I may want to reward for potential blood. I would, you know, realistically, the blood doesn't help us in our study. So if I accidentally prove him off of this residual blood, it doesn't ruin our goal because, again, I can't do anything with it for that particular study versus then if you did. Uh, and there were a couple times where this happened where um, I was able to confirm that it was a little bit of bat. So I'd find like a little teeny tiny bit of the, I call it wing leather, like the skin in between um, the further wings or like a little tuft of hair. And we would jackpot for that because I could confirm it. And it was like, holy cow, man, that was so little so little odor. What a great job. What a good boy. Even though I couldn't necessarily, I mean, depending on exactly what it was, we still maybe couldn't use it. I don't know if that adds anything to this discussion or the distinction yeah. uh, or maybe just muddy, muddies the water more. <laughs> no, I think you make an absolutely fantastic point in that, um, you know, the, we've trained our dog on a specific odor and 
just because we can't physically see it doesn't mean it's not there. So mm-hmm. you have a small piece of that that's remaining. Um, that's or a, a, a piece of skin that's sloughed off an animal and our dog picks it up. I mean, we can't physically see it perhaps, but we've trained our dog to such, to such an extent that they're going to indicate on it. Um, mm-hmm. If you've, and, and like I just mentioned a minute ago, when I, um, when I'm training and I can take it anywhere, I'll take my little bits of Kong. So you can, people stick them and I do it to you stick them in a wall and you stick them in there really deep. So that, you know, you can't see them or whatever. And, and then you got to take them out. Mm-hmm. And then you wonder, you wonder why you sort of have your dog search, continue their search and say, they um, come back to that, that spot. And you think, Oh, that's just residual. That's just nothing. And then you look closer and no. You've pulled off a little microscopic piece of that Kong as you were pulling it out of the wall. Yep. So I don't, I want to teach my dog odor and I want them to indicate on the odor threshold that, that I've trained them to as low as mm-hmm. you know I need to go or as high as I need to go or whatever it is. And if there's nothing there that I can't see, I'm going to let somebody else figure it out. Yeah. Or in your, or in your case, that's actually, you know, who knows, um, you, you mark it, you note it in your book and maybe mm-hmm. someday that'll be interesting information for somebody. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, oh gosh, I had something else. Where was I going to go with it? Oh, contamination. I, I think one of the other things that you may notice, I think part of the reason in the scent work world we get, um, like in the AKC competitive scent work world, odor contamination is such a big concern is probably, I think, partially because you're working with such ridiculously volatile compounds. So as we said, like this birch organic uh, essential oil, it's so easy to have that end up everywhere versus if if you're taking a little bit of kong and you put it on a hard service and then you pick it up and you go away and the next day someone is searching there there's probably not enough odor to mess up someone else's dog but if you you know put a drop of an essential oil somewhere and didn't put it on a q-tip and then left it there and then even if you pick it up it seems like there's a much higher chance that that is enough odor to mess up someone else's dog and then i think on the other side on the, in the scent work world, you know, you've got, um, or again, in this like AKC scent work world, you've got so many people all looking for the same target odor that you've got other inexperienced handlers potentially leaving out contaminants that are an issue for you in a way that like, I just did a training session at PetSmart the other day. I'm not really worried that anyone else has hidden a dead bat in a PetSmart. <laughs> but if you, if you were in a Home Depot, it wouldn't be unreasonable to be a little bit worried that someone else has recently done some nose work practice there. Yeah, that's a, that's a real concern because if your dog indicates and you're, and you didn't put anything out, but somebody else put something out or somebody else made a contamination, Mm -hmm. then you're kind of like entering this little gray area where, you know, what, what's happening, you don't really know. Um, And I've heard that you know, I mean, in the U.S., not many people use Kong, but they do overseas in the U.K. and Europe. It's, mm-hmm. it's very, very common. And so I know that's um, I was listening to I can't remember her name on on um, the wildlife conference that was just held recently. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a mention about um, 
you know, why they didn't use Kong as a, as a training aid. And it was just because of that, the same reason that, you know, it, mm -hmm. somebody could leave something out and then it's not a good scent to use in that situation. Yeah. Well, I can but, actually, now I'm thinking, you know, this training session I did in PetSmart yesterday, if my dogs had been trained to find Kong, uh, <laughs> we would have found a lot of Kongs. <laughs> Well, here's the here's the thing about that because I've actually had some of my detection students who um, who have transitioned their dog to Kong and they're like, oh my gosh, but what if a Kong is is out in a um, in a search environment? You know that I go to an AKC test and and that's the distraction odor. And I said, is it hidden? And they said, no, it'll be just on the floor. I said, then your dog probably won't indicate on it because remember, location, location. Your dog goes in that environment. And unless they've been trained and reinforced for indicating on the Kong that's in the middle of the room just sitting there, they're probably not going to. They're looking for the thing that's hidden, mm -hmm. right? Well, and I it's would also sort of, yeah. imagine, I don't know exactly the condition of the Kongs that you use for training, but these immaculate, never used before you know, they're still shiny. They really, really just smell like rubber. Um, Kongs probably have a pretty different odor profile. From, I mean, again, the Kongs that I use around my house that have been slobbered on and there may have been dog food or peanut butter involved, which I assume yeah. you're not using your stuffed Kongs, but still like it, it, they're so pristine that they they seem a little different potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially. So. Yeah. But I, I mean, but, it goes back to that, that uh, thing about location in, um, you know, search and rescue dogs, they're out searching, let's say the wilderness for the lost person. Well, every time you train, that person is hidden mm -hmm. somehow. So mm -hmm. you also have to train them on the moving subject, the person who is not hidden. Otherwise, it's not part of the picture for the dog. Right. Oh, gosh. And they would just ignore, you know, a child that's just sitting under a tree. Well, sitting under a tree is a pretty, uh, pretty still common hidden. picture, uh -huh. but yeah, it's still hidden. Sitting down is tucked up against a tree is pretty standard, actually. Oh, okay, picture. okay. But 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 say the say the lost hiker, um, who's up and walking around. Yeah, still mobile. Still mobile. Yeah. Um, there's kind of a our search dogs begin to um, recognize the picture of other searchers. So, you know, when they're young and new, sometimes they'll indicate an alert on them or whatever, the wilderness air scenting dogs. But after a while, they realize those are just other searchers because they're wearing the backpack. They might have walking poles. Mm -hmm. They look like other searchers. They're in a group or whatever. Well, your lost person might be walking around too and look like that. So you have to teach the dogs that the person is not always um, behind a tree. And this is really important mm -hmm. for um, us that do urban trailing in particular because you're lost. Particularly, um, you know, uh, someone with um, a cognitive impairment of some kind might just be walking. They're not hiding. They're just walking. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's so, I, I, I feel like, again, like the big thing we keep talking about is how understanding the behavior of what you're looking for is so important and then making sure you're mimicking that in your search setup. Absolutely. And it's the same for, um, for you guys that are doing mm -hmm. the wildlife conservation. Make sure you understand, you know, your species that you're looking for and 
where they're lo normally located and how they normally present themselves and to mimic that and get it into yeah absolutely important and especially you know and this is something we've talked about that i'm really obsessed with is the idea of how literal your dog is um and how again you know they may like so if, for example niffler found a couple live bats over the course of this summer that had been hit by the turbine but hadn't died um and the first time he found one, I mean, he followed it to, he followed the odor to source and then he got there and he got to within about two, three meters of it and then stopped dead and was like, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, that's totally fair. I didn't teach you how to deal with that. And versus Barley, the first time he encountered a live bat, he just alerted to it. He walked right up to it, marched and plopped out and he was like, yep, this is it. And that is a very, um, Niffler is very much so my dog who is more likely to make errors of omission. He's more likely to be like, mm, that's not a hundred percent what I knew how to look for. So I'm not going to tell you about it. And Barley is very much so my dog who will be like, well, how about this? Well, what about that? Are you looking for this? Can I have my ball now? <laughs> well, and, and to understand how they learn. I mean, I, um, mm -hmm. Holly, my other, one of my other Sussex, um, he was a, he also did HRD. To be honest, it wasn't really his gig. So I certified him. He did a couple searches and then he got sick and I retired him anyhow. But, um, you know, it really wasn't his gig. I, he was so literal at how I trained him. It was like, get my nose, my nose close to source and do it down. Well, mm -hmm. when it, the hide was inaccessible, he couldn't indicate. He could, mm. he never would fault, but he could not bring himself to indicate because he couldn't get his nose on source. Yeah. So, um, master trainer I was working with, with at the time, he said, well, what does he like to do? I said, well, naturally he does a little paw thing and let him do a paw thing. It's not hurting anything. He's not digging. He's not destroying mm -hmm. source. And it was like, oh, so I let him paw and he downed and problem solved. But he was so literal in what I taught him. <laughs> <laughs> he, couldn't, he couldn't indicate yeah yeah gosh <laughs> yeah these poor, poor dogs <laughs> they, they're, they're trying so hard to do it right um is there anything that you wanted to bring up or wanted to circle back to before we go is there anything i forgot to ask you about i don't think so i've just really enjoyed the conversation and um i you know, since I've had a couple of students now that have gone into the wildlife um, conservation field, um, I've been enjoying learning about what you all do and how you do it and how complex it really is and how your odor sources and your projects can change from something big to something small um, to, you know, diff such vastly different environments. Yeah. I think it's completely fascinating um, and does take, you know, dogs and handlers with just the right drive and dogs and mm -hmm. handlers that can problem solve. And, and um, I think it's really fascinating. So I've, I've been thrilled to, to learn this aspect of um, search work. Yeah. Well, and it's nice for us to have people like you who are willing to learn and willing to jump in and mentor people because this is a young field. It's much younger than SAR. So we just don't have as many people with 20 plus years experience in this field. There are some, <laughs> uh, but there's not as many as you can find in some other um, disciplines. So it's really lovely when we can find people who are willing to help and uh, we're grateful for that. Uh, well, it's, it's great. Every time I go out, I say this to my students, every time I go out with my dog, they're teaching me something. Oh yeah. Yeah. And every actually the one last, time. yeah. 
The one last thing that did come to mind for me when we were talking about the really big searches and the really detailed searches, that's actually part of the reason that I have two dogs is because I know that not every dog is actually a dog who is willing and able to make those massive transitions. And I, I suspect at some point I'll end up with three or four dogs, um, you know, not necessary right now and not really feasible given my living situation, but, um, I was going to you say, know. you're going to need, you're going to need a bigger van. <laughs> going to need a bigger van. Yeah. <laughs> What's the, we, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> um, yeah. Gosh. If I could have like a, a pull behind dog suite, then I could have two more dogs. Or if I switch down to working chihuahuas, <laughs> if, my, if my detail dog is just, is just eight pounds, then I can have, I've got room for eight pound dogs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to make a chihuahua be my large area search dog, but you know, no. for like detailed stuff, I don't see why you couldn't have an eight pound dog. <laughs> if you, you, you know what you actually could, and especially if you have an environment that, that suits that dog. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So I think there's a, I think it's a Chihuahua or a Pappy. I know there's, I know there's been in Oregon, there was a Pappy mm-hmm. on that was doing HRD. And I know there's been others. I think there was a disaster dog that was, they were using on for very small, um, you know, to get into small spaces. Oh that yeah. That's hard. I want to, we talked about yeah. when we were doing a lot of boat searches, how nice it would be to have a little, you know, just a dog under 20 pounds that you could like hoist up. Um, to, or, you know, actually put into the boat to check a ballast area or something like that. I know um, Working Dogs for Conservation has a beagle and a uh, Shiba Inu that both do rat um, work down in, I think, South Georgia Island area. And I just interviewed someone um, from New Zealand who uses uh, border terrier, fox terrier crosses, um, also for rodent stuff, which makes a ton of sense. If you're looking at rodents, you probably want a terrier. Um, yeah. Yes. But, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's an advantage to the smaller dogs. I mean, I've always had smaller dogs, although. Um, yeah. How much do Sussex weigh? So here's, here's the, just a comparison. Mm-hmm. So Millie is um, 15 inches. She's my working cocker. So she's 15 inches at the weathers and weighs in at about 18 to 19 pounds. Mm-hmm. Tolly is my male Sussex Spaniel. He also is 15 inches up the withers and weighs in at 45 plus pounds. Oh my gosh. And he is fit. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, that's a... I mean, it's like when... Because aren't like English Bulldogs, um, which often are overweight, but also, you know, you look at an English Bulldog or even like a fit Frenchie and they weigh two or three times as much as you would expect for a dog that height. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Sussex are like little, just I don't. They're stocky dogs, but they're yeah. they're they shouldn't they shouldn't be fat, but they're um well boned and um mm-hmm. yeah they're big dogs in little packages. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, I think that's all of your time that I want to take up right now. I could talk to you all day, um, <laughs> but I really, really appreciate your time. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for being here. I hope you learned a lot. You're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find those show notes where we'll link to all of Anne's um, in upcoming stuff. You can donate to Canine Conservationists and you can join our Patreon over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. 
Are you on Patreon yet? If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. I spend hours per episode researching guests, writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive Detection Dog Training video help calls, which happen once a month, our Learning Club calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining the community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.